on this episode of the Medusa Metacast, a brief case for logic. Let's dive in. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning. Seems simple enough of a concept, and it is. However, trying to decipher errors in reasoning can be difficult. Common parlance doesn't always present as clear enough that we can all determine which conclusions are being put forward. The more dynamic the language being used, the more difficult it becomes to ascertain exactly what is being claimed, and upon which evidence exactly these claims are based. After verifying that the reasoning is free of errors, there is also the matter of verifying the truth of the claim, which is a whole separate endeavor. We can't cover all of that here because it's just too vast, so we'll start small, and over time, work our way towards the really difficult problems of thought and reason. Before delving into some examples and demonstrating what it means for an argument to be logically fallacious, I think it's worth providing a brief overview of a few important points as to why there is value placed on these sorts of processes. I'd also like to make the case as to why subscribing to a set of rational processes based on eliminating errors of reason in both your personal and social life is far more likely to provide you with predictable results, which means you're more likely to get what you want. I didn't anticipate having to make this case because this seemed to be evident, but I have heard rumblings lately that the realm of logic is under attack for it being a mechanism used by the affluent to obtain and hold power, a conclusion that is supported neither by valid arguments nor evidence. Ever since rational principles were well understood, it's been the exact opposite. Rational principles are used to defeat justifications offered by the affluent that seek to hold power. Reason empowers opponents of the affluent to have a fighting chance, and it threatens norms that have been established in bad faith. There are two intrinsic qualities of logic, which is based on rational principles, that categorize it as one of the best mechanisms to solve problems and discuss ideas. One of these qualities is that it can be formalized and accessed by anyone capable of understanding it, which is nearly everyone, because it is generally highly intuitive. It can be written or spoken and translated, and the rules that govern the approach are available for everyone and are unambiguous. If someone says they're being logical, it can be tested and agreed upon. Formal logic is a simple description of premises that are believed to support a conclusion. Structurally, this is among the most straightforward approaches for organizing information and seeing what we can extrapolate from it. Where it can get complicated is when we disagree on the structure itself, the degree to which valid conclusions are true or false, and the mechanisms we use to resolve these. Obviously, at some point there needs to be some negotiating about what we can do about these, because using formal logic to determine whether or not the structure of formal logic is reliable is a philosophical sin. I got you, David Hume. <laughs> He's my homeboy. But how we conclude these negotiations is largely predicated on the observance of cause and effect, a relationship so intuitive to humans that our brains are algorithmically wired to see it even where it doesn't exist. There is much more to the discovery of truth beyond using formal logic, but it's an excellent starting point. And even the discussions of whether or not it is a valid approach would require rational discourse. To reiterate the first intrinsic quality, it is that it is intuitively formalized based on relationships between things that humans are not only predisposed to value, but that we rely upon for survival. Furthermore, the matter of determining its validity would require the use of a rational approach. 
Hence, it is inescapable. The other of these qualities, which does an excellent job of filling the glaring hole that some of you may have noticed, is that it is fundamentally similar to the scientific method and its progenitor, the Socratic method. The reason why this is an excellent hole filler, insert penis joke here, is that with proper and regular application of a logical approach, we can determine its reliability. How do we know that the predicted result of our logic will be realized? You test it, and if it doesn't work, reassess the components of the approach and try again. It could be that the approach is flawed in its composition, or the conclusion isn't valid, and we can assess these by familiarizing ourselves with logical fallacies. If something we predicted would logically follow, to whatever extent we're willing to commit to, actually ends up occurring, then it scores a point for it being potentially reliable. Over time, if you use and reuse the same approach and are able to predict desirable outcomes and achieve them, then you have a good tool. Formal logic provides a structure to assist us with the predictability of reality. It isn't perfect, and some things are so complex that it is impossible to manage all of their moving parts. But on a small scale, and within parameters that you can affect in some manner, logic is the only game in town in the pursuit of achieving goals that we can rely upon over time. An example I'll use to demonstrate this is the training of sexual favors, because I am high class. Now, this may be difficult, again, to make sense of for those of you listening, but if you would like to see the actual argument laid out, you can go to my website at angulosphilosophy.com and look for a short case for logic. Observe the transaction. The first premise is that person A has something that person B wants. The second is that person A is willing to exchange things for other things. The third is that person A is susceptible to sexual favors by virtue of being human. Four, person B is aware of this human susceptibility. The fifth is that person B is aware that they are attractive in a way that may please person A. The sixth is that person B is willing to exchange sexual favors for the thing they want that person A possesses. Therefore, the conclusion that could be reached is number seven. Person A is likely to give up the thing that person B wants in exchange for sexual favors. This may not always work, and we may be wrong about the degree to which any of these claims are accurate, but it's just a tool. That being said, if person B indeed attempts this and is successful, and then makes more attempts over time, and the results are favorable, then it becomes a tool that can be used to reliably predict outcomes in reality. In case you couldn't tell, this was an original formalized argument that I created. You won't be learning anything this advanced in your school. <laughs> if you were able to assess the degree to which you can predict an outcome, then you'll experience fewer surprises, and you're better able to get what you want. It's really all about understanding the system you're working within. This is why it is often stated that knowledge is power, because with more knowledge of the system you're working within, the better able you are to predict outcomes. And if you make moves to establish the predicates, you're far more likely to get the desired result. When we get good at this, this makes us feel like we have more control in our lives. And when we feel like we have more control in our lives, we end up being satisfied more frequently, and we perceive less injustice in the systems around us. Of course, this introduces all sorts of ethical issues, with the degree to which it may be right or fair to navigate a system this way but that is the baggage of knowledge. That's also why ignorance is bliss. Knowledge and ignorance are just two sides of the coin of suffering, 
You get to pick which side you're living on, but you'll either be plagued by being less effectual than you could be, or plagued with the realization that despite how effectual you have become, you may yet lament your knowledge whilst realizing that it still isn't enough to cure your human condition. Either way, we suffer. But I honestly believe it's better to be in a position where you can at least get more of what you want out of life. The desired result is that we can learn to expect specific outcomes, we can mentally prepare for the ones we dislike, and choose whether or not to participate in certain situations to affect those outcomes. This will directly translate into the frequency with which we experience positive and negative emotions. The rest is gravy for logic, and it is delicious. If it were store-bought, it would be KFC gravy. Establishing a framework of logic can be done in advance, with others to determine if an outcome makes sense. In this way, it helps with planning, and although doing this will cause you to spend more time in the planning phase rather than the doing phase, it should reduce the likelihood of a failure as a consequence of accounting for all of the failures of reason you may not have considered. In this way, failures of reason can often translate into failures of outcome. Additionally, the tool of formal logic assists us in making us aware of failures in our reason that aren't apparent in the realm of thought. I spend a lot of time thinking, probably more than is healthy for any individual, and something I've noticed is that it's very hard for me to understand exactly which conclusions I've reached, and how I organize my thoughts in a way that produced them, in the absence of writing them out or discussing them with others. Verbalizing thoughts can often make us realize that something we believe to be brilliant in our heads is completely ridiculous when we say it aloud, and writing it down in a formal manner can be helpful as well. I would say a conversation with someone who thinks critically is likely better, because that way you have access to a different mind, and despite our best attempts, we aren't particularly good at replicating the thought process of others. Formalizing your thoughts to verify they make sense is likely not as robust, but it's certainly useful, and it can be done with someone else as well to get the best of both worlds. Improving our critical thinking through the use of clearly defined rational processes is a key factor in growth as well. If you think you're right about anything, then it significantly impedes on your ability to grow, because that particular question has already been answered. Doubt is like God, when our ego allows for the creation of new structures and the combination of existing ones. And certainty is like the devil filled with hardened convictions that seek to dominate or destroy what it recognizes to obviously be good or evil. It is impossible to maximize your potential while being certain of things, and growth is how we describe the rate and distance of our movement towards whichever apex we have in our sights. This is why we practice things if we want to get better, and the rate of our improvement is correlated with our willingness to accept new information and the frequency with which we exercise its utility. This is true for sports, where we learn from people better than us about different skills or techniques that would improve our performance, and the more we practice it, the more proficient we become. It's true for romance, where people may have never kissed or had sex with one another before. Your experiences are different, and your default inclinations in these regards may be different. It may be that someone is better than us in these matters, whatever that means, but even if it's just that we're different... How people synchronize in intimacy begins when you listen to one another and practice these things with a mutual interest of feeling good while being naughty. 
I do a lot of public speaking, and how I became better at it over time was by observing other speakers, taking constructive feedback, and practicing. This is also true for home repair and renovations, which are becoming increasingly common, and they cost us our time and money. The first time we plaster drywall or change a faucet or lay down flooring, we may do a decent job, but after watching it done a few times online or by a tradesperson and doing it ourselves repeatedly, we can see the improved quality of our final product and how quickly we completed it. With minor exceptions, we'll never be an elite athlete, a competent lover, a captivating public speaker, or a reliable handyman or handywoman if we ignore advice and never practice. And how likely we are to stifle our own growth is dependent on how certain we are of ourselves and our own proficiencies. We alone do not dictate our worth or proficiency in matters such as these because they exist in a world that everyone shares, and we can compare your performance with those of others. No amount of self-assuredness will make you great at something if you can't deliver the goods. To live like this would be to live in a delusion, which is not quite the same as an illusion or a dream, but they're all similar in the way that catastrophe assues upon their death. For the highly motivated, there is one more way in which logic and rational principles are valuable, and that is that it provides us with some opportunities in life, especially in highly lucrative industries. The vast majority of all inventions and strategies to implement them are based on rational principles. Reason is the language of business. Even when there's an opportunity to capitalize on the emotions of the public, we still use a rational approach to develop these mechanisms. Business loans seeking approval, products seeking investment, and all other exchanges where large amounts of money are involved are framed with rational principles. The television show Dragon's Den is an excellent example of this fact. For those of you unaware, Dragon's Den is a show where wealthy entrepreneurs, known as dragons, are presented with potential business deals from existing or future entrepreneurs in the hopes of having one or more of the dragons agree to invest in their business. I have watched a significant number of episodes, in between streaming porn and cat videos, obviously, and there is something that is true in virtually every sales pitch. If your pitch doesn't make sense, no one is investing in you. It doesn't matter if your business is successful if you want too large of an investment for too little equity. It doesn't matter if your idea is good if you don't know how to run your business. It doesn't matter if your idea solves climate change or if your product is made from orphan's tears and cures cancer if it can't be profitable. However, if you have a modest business and it's operating well and you ask for an investment that makes sense, you are far more likely to get a deal. You need to make sense from a business point of view. Otherwise, this is called philanthropy. Not that I'm knocking philanthropy, I actually devote a significant amount of my own time and money to helping others, but that isn't how businesses make money. Even if a business wanted to have a philanthropic interest, it can't realize it until it makes money. After all, you can't donate a million dollars to charity if you didn't make far more than that in order to continue operating your business and play your employees. It is in this way that successful people require an enthusiasm and respect for rational principles. You need to make sense, and you need to demonstrate how you make sense. Or you could just be hot. Now, that will take you places. The rest of us, we need to learn how to actually make sense and produce something of value. These are all just points I thought worth mentioning in favor of formalizing your thinking and applying rational principles. Ultimately, it is just a tool, but it's the best tool that we have to grow 
improve the likelihood of getting what we want, and negotiating with others using an accessible and intuitive set of rules. If you like indoor plumbing, modern cell phones, cars, buildings, and anything else that makes our lives safer and easier, then you value rational principles. These things could only exist and actually work if their design made sense in a way that could be reliably reproduced. It is also what elevates us beyond other animals and our capacity to maintain peace and order, create and shape our environment in an unprecedented manner, and recognize that the primacy of an individual reigns supreme. All important and valuable discussions to be had. But those will have to wait for another time. This episode was a recording from one of the articles on my website. You can find all of the written articles that I have under the Discourse tab on my website, angelosphilosophy.com. On the next episode, Derek and I will be talking about the case for free speech. And I find it kind of peculiar still that we are living in a time when people seem to be confused about the concept of freedom of speech and what it offers, what the value of it is, and certain things that we generally tend to be able to predict that usually ensue or occur after we've decided to give the power to a government or a private company to limit the degree to which we can express ourselves freely. And I find it weird that somehow we all seem to have collectively forgotten why it is that these things are important. And so we will be having a conversation that I hope you'll like, where we will be going through a litany of arguments that I've made over the years and recorded with the intention of writing a book about it one day. And I think that it'll be a very worthwhile listen for anyone interested in human rights, in democracy, or if maybe you're someone who's interested but always had difficulty maybe trying to find the words for why it is that you've maybe felt so strongly about free speech. So stay tuned for that. That's it for this episode. This is Matt from the Medusa Metacast signing off. Until next time, viciously pursue truth with courage and kindness. Take care of yourselves and one another. Goodbye.